This yes. is hell. Okie doke. Live from late capitalism, where we know the price of everything but the value of nothing, this is hell. One of the many things that we no longer recognize the value of or appreciate the value of, that is, if we ever did, is the value of the city. Instead, what attracts many of us to visit cities are often the very same aspects of urban, urban life that are eradicated by those who are returning to cities and imposing gentrification. What makes cities the quirky, exciting, diverse places we love, those traits are erased by newly relocated outsiders once developers, realtors, and yes, government policy is undemocratically foisted upon cities, neighborhoods, and their residents. Rarely do those involved in gentrification consider what their relocation means for the former community members who are dislocated, displaced by high prices and rents. Yes, gentrification is a class project that targets the poor for displacement, but it's, it's more than that. In a few minutes, we'll learn what gentrification is, what it isn't, and what it is for everybody when we speak with Leslie Kern, author of Gentrification is Inevitable and Other Lies. Leslie is an associate professor of geography and environment and director of women's and gender studies at Mount Allison University. Leslie's earlier books include... Sex in the Revitalized City, Gender, Condominium Development, and Urban Citizenship, and Feminist City, A Field Guide. Leslie's research has earned a Fulbright Visiting Scholar Award, a National Housing Studies Achievement Award, and several national multi-year grants. She is also an award-winning teacher. Her writing has appeared in The Guardian, Vox, Bloomberg City Lab, and Refinery29. Follow Leslie on Twitter at Lely K L E L L Y then the letter K. Check out Leslie's sub Substack. Sub sorry, Leslie's Substack. Harder to say than you think. Perfectly cromulent at LeslieKern.substack.com. I'm your bitter blind broke gap tooth radio show live streaming and podcast host Chuck Mertz. Producing is Sebastian Vooper. Sebastian, anything new about you? Oh, not really. No, I'm nothing. Just- been sitting at home all weekend practicing my Gilbert Gottfried voice, but <laughs> why? Why are you practicing that? For God's sake! <laughs> I'm just joking. Uh, <laughs> it was like in memoriam. You were really concerned yes, about the yes. port. Uh, no, by the way, went... the best Abraham Lincoln ever. He actually plays Abraham Lincoln oh, in a very it. short part of a movie, and okay. it is fantastic. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> uh, anyway, no, we, uh, my wife and I, we uh, basically just, well, we had our, our the anniversary of our first wedding this weekend, so we did uh, various anniversary-related things, um, went to uh, another German restaurant, uh, Laschet's, this time. Oh, I love that place. Yeah, that's pretty cool. It's like a, it's actually, it's more, like, authentic uh, I think than the one that we catered from. Uh, I mean, the food I think was better from where we catered from, but Luscious has more of a ambiance. Vibe. Yes, um, it's more like just a bar. Yeah, basically, it's. I mean, it's it's basically a German dive bar, and like they play the same kind of music that you, that you would actually hear at a German dive bar. So that's accurate. Yeah, for the most part, anyway. It's not quite as Disney uh, as as otherwise can be. Um, but, and then on uh, on yesterday, on yesterday, yeah, <laughs> English, I know how to do that. Um, we went to the Morton Arboretum's uh, uh, light show thingy. No, oh, yeah. So, the, yeah. Uh, 
woman who's the director of the Morton Arboretum is a, uh, oh no, that's the Morton, I'm sorry, that's the Botanical Garden is a big uh, listener of our show. I was getting confused, the Morton Arboretum. Yeah, I, I, I confused those two, and I was like, yeah. wait, where are we going? Where exactly. are you taking <laughs> Why are we still going west? Yeah. Uh, Lachette's is in the neighborhood where our correspondent in Sao Paulo, uh, Brian Muir, was raised. So the last time he was here in town, we all went to go out to eat at Lachette's and had a fantastic time. Huh. What's new by me is I have been struggling to make a decision on whether or not we should do something, something we promised we would do, something that we really hope we still can do. But because the so-called triple-demic of COVID-19 plus the respiratory syncytial virus infection, or RSV, as well as the flu that is going around... Uh, locally, our, business, our hospitals are filling up, not with patients who caught any of those diseases, but with elderly patients who have been turned away from suburban hospitals because they signed up for those Medicare plans. You see it advertised on TV. Those plans, despite what they claim in their ads, are not being accepted at a lot of hospitals because they do not actually provide the coverage that Medicare does. And unlike Medicare, hospitals apparently are not required to accept those plans or those patients So our hospitals are filling up, not from disease, but from this very shoddy coverage that's being sold on TV. Anyway, because all of that, I've been struggling with making a decision, and I will tell you what that decision is and what we're trying to decide about in just a moment. But first, Sebastian, what is this week's question from hell for our listening audience? Uh, this week's question from hell, which is superbly written, by the way, and I wasn't too (laughs) certain. I started reading the question from hell and I was like, should we use this? Shouldn't we use this? And I was cracking up by the end of it, showed it to my girly and she said, yes, definitely use this as the question from hell. Okay, so this week by Sebastian. Yeah, yeah. It's obvious that that is written by me because my, my question, question, Questions from hell. I should have like done like blah, like theatrical warm up yes. exercises before the show. I'm red kind leather, of... yellow leather, red leather, yellow exactly. leather. Exactly. Um, anyway, my questions from hell always tend to be a little verbose, but whatever. Uh, I'm German. I, I get that's that that gives me the, <laughs> the obligation to be long winded. You have a license. Yes. Um, so the question from hell this week is: What tiny, normally inconsequential thing that someone does in your close proximity is the straw that breaks the pre-Christmas slash holidays stress-powered camel's back, making you fly so thoroughly off the handle that you make national news? <laughs> Let me repeat that: What tiny, normally inconsequential thing that someone does in your close proximity is the straw that breaks the pre-Christmas slash holidays stress-powered camel's back, making you fly so thoroughly off the handle? let you make national news the national news part that's the kicker that's the really the best part of it you got to think what would possibly make the national it's got to be really dumb yeah. it's got to be real culture war oriented it's got to have no real effect on anybody's daily life yep and i i just and I that's just, why it's in the national news yeah yeah and i i just hope that there's no like like my hope is that we keep the fart humor to to yes them. yes please you can leave your answer to this week's question from hell as always at our facebook page you can tweet it at us via twitter at this is hell radio you can email it to chuck at this is hell.com but we must have your answer by the end of this week's show and we will be announcing the winner as we do every week following jeff dorchin and his weekly commentary the moment of truth if your answer is our favorite you will get your choice of this is hell stuff you can see all of our stuff right now by going to this is hell.com and clicking on support where you can see all the ways you can support this is hell as well as all of our merchandise and thanks to all the listeners who are doing their holiday gift shopping at this is hell.com thanks to john l in lake havasu city 
Arizona, who purchased both a This Is Hell winter hat and a This Is Hell face mask. A couple of very timely purchases, as it is getting colder outside, which means more people are going inside. And with the triple-demic, John L. will need that mask. But is it getting colder in Arizona? It is. It does get oh, cold okay. in Arizona. New Mexico okay. gets some snow, too. Yeah, It depends on what part of Arizona and New Mexico you are from, but... I can follow up on that tomorrow with Lindsay, who's from Arizona. Uh, also thanks to Tom D. of Urbana, Illinois, Warren M. of Thornton, Washington, Brianna M. of Orlando, Florida, and Michaela C. of Worcester, Massachusetts. They all picked up our very popular This Is Hell Truckers Cap. So thanks, John, Tom, Warren, Brianna, and Michaela. If you visit thisishell.com and click on support, we will thank you personally on air. Brave enough to be streaming live, dumb enough to be goofy, stupid enough to think that we could be a regular part of your weekly hangover. This is hell. And Sebastian has this week's hangover cure, and he's very excited about it because, again, it is Icelandic. (laughs) I know you're doing this on purpose. Yes. For the fourth week in a row, we are citing an article posted at the website Iceland Airwives. Much better website. (laughs) I'm sorry. Iceland Airwaves at grapevine.is with the headline, Where to Cure Your Festival Hangover with, quote, words by Irina Zumenko. We have already offered Irina's hangover cure recommendations of jumping in a pool, going out to a Reykjavik restaurant for potassium-rich food, and the Green Shield spinach juice blend from Iceland's Joe and the Juice Juicery. Keeping in mind these are cures specifically for festival hangovers, this week's cure from Iceland is the nap. Soon to be uh, an, an award-winning uh, 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 Netflix series. AMC series. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, Subienko <laughs> writes, This one is the most budget-friendly advice on our list. If you're feeling unwell, just take a nap. The next concert doesn't start until well into the evening, so you do have a luxury of sleeping in. Yes, we know it might be harder to fall asleep, and yes, we're also aware of FOMO, but take our word, it's better to oversleep a concert than... Show up there feeling like you'd rather be dead. If curing a hangover at some at, at home sounds boring for you, maybe check out a museum. Take a nap at a museum? Uh, we don't know what the consequences of taking a nap in one of those might be, though. Uh, our best suggestion, Höfuthstöðin. That's close. Herfuth, I don't know. Herfuthstöðin. <laughs> With its fluffy walls and colorful installations, it might not take your headache away, but can certainly bring some peace of mind. We didn't know what Höfuthstöðin <laughs> is either, but apparently it is an art and culture destination that permanently houses the work in, uh, of the artist Shoplifters, a.k.a. Raff... <laughs> Raffenhildur Arnandottir's monumental large installation, Chromo Sapiens. Höfuth Stöthin <laughs> also features a design shop, lounge space, event venue, and cafe with, in, with outdoor seating. Uh, that makes this week's Hangover Cure from Iceland taking the nap while visiting Shoplifter's Chromo Sapiens. <laughs> and now you have to look up the artist Shoplifter, which is I mean, pretty incredible. Yeah. Uh, Shoplifter, the way that she picked up that name is people were mispronouncing her name as Shoplifter, which doesn't make any sense, but uh, okay. I don't know how to pronounce Icelandic. 
due to the pandemic, yeah, Due to the pandemic, we were unable to have what had been our annual "This Is Hell" anniversary uh, and listener appreciation party featuring the "This Is Hell" art show for a couple of years. In the summer of 2020, not hosting the party and art show was a no-brainer. There was no vaccine yet, and the government was still saying that a vaccine was likely still a year or so away. It wasn't a very hard decision to make at all. Back then, we were still wearing latex gloves. We were still changing our clothes when we returned home. We were still washing our hands for 25 seconds. Restaurants were still closed, as were most of ours. So it was easy to decide that we could not host our annual party for listeners. The following year, in the summer of 2021, it was still not that difficult to determine yet again that we should not have our annual party. The earliest version of the Omicron variant was sweeping the nation. We always feature live music during the party, music selected, chosen, and programmed by listeners. But with musicians still not performing live due to concerns for their audience's physical well-being, again, it was not hard to decide to postpone our once annual party for yet another year. year. Then came this year, what has turned out to be a horrible 2022, at least for me. We were already promoting the return of the This Is Hell Anniversary and Listener Appreciation Party when in early March of this year, I was rushed to the emergency room for what turned out to be a life-saving surgery. Despite almost dying, I held out hope that we could finally have our party for the first time since 2019. However, my team of healthcare workers, including my non-wife who literally saved my life by insisting I go to the ER all said it was probably not a good idea to host a party only a few weeks after my final surgery we then decided to delay the party to give me more time to heal and instead of holding it in late July as we were supposed to we moved it to September and the autumnal equinox the first day of fall we did finally have that annual listener appreciation party this past first day of fall. The weather was great, and despite hearing from a lot of listeners who told us they still did not feel safe to attend a party, the turnout was far better than expected. In fact, the crowd was huge. The anniversary party was fantastic, and I got so excited about finally hanging out with listeners for the first time in three freaking years that on the very next show following the party, I couldn't help but start promoting our other annual party, the This Is Hell Holiday Office Party, to be held on the winter solstice, the first day of winter. Then in early November, I caught COVID and was laid up for two full weeks and finally testing negative during the Thanksgiving weekend. I was able to return to the show, and because of what I had just gone through, because we were all in the midst of a triple-demic, I was hesitant to mention the holiday office party for the last couple of weeks. Since I tested negative, we have been holding our weekly Wednesday evening meet-and-greet. This is hell office hours, and we will again this week. However, as members of my family have expressed their doubts about exactly how safe it is to host a party only a few days before we are supposed to be celebrating the holidays with family, and not only one branch of our extended family, but three different celebrations in three different towns in Michigan, There's been a lot of uncertainty about whether there will be a This Is Hell holiday office party or not this year. Taking all that into consideration, I've finally made an executive decision, which will likely be very unpopular with some people, and for others will be a very welcome announcement, and that is, yes, the This Is Hell holiday office party returns. On the winter solstice next Wednesday, December 21st, beginning at 6 p.m. at the bar downstairs from where I am sitting right now, Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's West Ridge neighborhood. 
So what is the This Is Hell Holiday Office Party years ago? Not only did some listeners who work online out of their homes, but friends of mine also told me they wish they had a place to meet up with their co-workers and celebrate the holidays. They explained that either their office didn't hold an annual holiday office party or their work did not have an office to hold a party or that their holiday office party sucked because, well, let's just say they didn't have the greatest co-workers. Sure, there were some co-workers they got along with and even liked, but not many. In other words, make the This Is Hell Holiday Office Party your holiday office party. Your work doesn't have a holiday office party? Make our party your party. Work online and don't have a place to party? Make our party your party. Not crazy about all your co-workers, but would love to celebrate the holidays with some of them? Make our party your party. Will you be in Chicago visiting family for the holidays? Hang out with your friends at the This Is Hell Holiday Office Party. Every person who does attend will get a special gift, and I will be announcing that after our guest. We'll also... Uh, have all of our This Is Hell merchandise for purchase in case you still have some late-minute holiday gift shopping to do. That's the This Is Hell holiday office party happening on Wednesday, December 21st, beginning at 6 p.m. at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's West Ridge neighborhood. One last thing, we also need your help, and we'll tell you what we need your help with following our guest. Coming up on This Is Hell, Leslie Kern, on what gentrification is and what it isn't, we'll tell you what happened on our most recent Patreon podcast of This Is Hell, exclusively for subscribers at patreon.com slash thisishell. We'll have a new edition of The Past Inside the uh, Present when producer Sebastian Vupper, who holds a doctorate in history, provides us with the historical context of the past so we can have a better understanding of the present. And Sebastian, what will you be talking about uh, this week? Uh, I'll be talking about the fun topic of the German-Israeli relations. Oh, that sounds like a hoot. Live from the United States where capitalism is the virus, this is hell. Most of us recognize the horrible impact gentrification has on the poor, displacing them from their often long-time homes, destroying communities and neighborhoods, eliminating everything that made those places special. But gentrification is even worse than that. It's not only a class project. It's a project targeting those based on gender, race, sexuality, age, and even ability. It is a project about those who have power and those who do not. Here to help us have a better understanding of what gentrification is and what it isn't, Leslie Kern is author of Gentrification is Inevitable and Other Lies. Welcome to This Is Hell, Leslie. Hi, thanks so much for having me. Thank you so much for being on the show because we've been talking about uh, gentrification since the show started way back in 1996. I think in 1998 or 1999, we talked with Rebecca Solnit about a book that you mentioned in your book, uh, Hollow City. So this is a, con- a conversation we've been having for a very long time. And yet, despite all the different permutations those conversations have had, uh, this is going to be very different, very unique because your perspective is really interesting. You, you write how you used to live in a West End Toronto, Ontario neighborhood called the Junction Car up and isolated at the junction of intersecting railroads, its industrial history was tangible in the sounds and smells drifting from rubber, paint, and meatpacking factories. Today, on a, on a hot afternoon, some of those smells might waft along, but they're competing with the scents emanating from upscale cafes and vegan bakeries. I know it is a cliche to talk about how gritty your neighborhood once was, but there's a reason why we all, we are all tired of this narrative. So many of our neighborhoods are being remade before our eyes. Again, this is in Toronto, Ontario, Canada, not only in the United States. Where is gentrification an issue? Has it even become a 
globalized issue to some degree? Is this happening wherever markets have this kind of influence over the real estate and development? Absolutely. It's a global issue at this point. Yes, global issue. We can look to just about every continent uh, except maybe Antarctica so far and find examples of gentrification happening. And yes, primarily in places where we have um, market centered uh, land markets in cities, you know, we're, we're seeing these processes take remarkably similar forms. You know, you can easily uh, walk around um, neighborhoods in Buenos Aires, for example, and be like, oh yeah, that's gentrification. You, you, it, it has a very um, familiar kind of set of sights and sounds and smells. So it's coming to Antarctica soon, I imagine. Uh, see, <laughs> quite possible. You write that what you uh, witnessed in the junction is part of a set of changes to the places and communities that have historically made cities special, made them interesting, made them sites of protest and progress. These changes have come to be called gentrification. So, so what makes cities special, in your opinion? What is lost yet vast profits are made through gentrification, with home and property values soaring to the extent that the people who made the city the the city or the neighborhood special are forced to move out. So what what is that specialness? What do you think makes those areas special before gentrification? I think they're special in part because of the mix of people in the community in terms of income level, background, education, um, immigration, sexuality, culture, language, all of those different elements of mix that we at least give lip service to saying that we value about cities. It's that mix of ideas that uh, generates um, change, that generates um, social progress. You know, the, um, the, the idea that, you know, bringing together sets of different perspectives is really kind of the foundation of democracy, if you will, right? The having some kind of uh, sphere of encounter and urban neighborhoods have long uh, served that purpose um, and also as sites where people kind of collectively can share their resources and access services, right? Cities are not only meant to be kind of engines of economic growth and production, but they're also supposed to be places where we, you know, bring together people to actually um, provide everything from, you know, education, healthcare, other sorts of social services and infrastructure that we all need. And, and you know, that's kind of the, the thing that makes a, a city special is that mix and that ability to uh, have that collective provision. And that collective provision can, uh, you know, stimulate creativity, can stimulate artistry, can stimulate great pieces of literature, great works of art. So why is there profit in taking away what is special? What explains that disconnect between what makes a city special and what can make a profit? Well, it's so interesting because I think there is um, a, a notion that you can kind of capitalize on what makes those areas special, right? Again, that kind of lip service to the idea of like cultural diversity and um, expressiveness and creativity and, and all of those kinds of things is kind of built into the gentrification project, right? An idea that what we want to do is, is take what's special about these neighborhoods and figure out a way to profit off of that. But what we see, I think, again and again, is that the, 
like the actual people, right? Because those things are not just like out there in the ether, right? They're created by people. And when the actual people that are involved in those processes can no longer afford to live or no longer feel welcome in their neighborhoods, we get this kind of homogenization or a very superficial rendering of those um, kind of cultural and social attributes that seem so attractive in the first place. You point, <clears throat> I'm having the same cough that you're having right now. Um, you describe the junction as its location next to Toronto's historic stockyards had attracted immigrants from Malta, Italy, and Poland to work in the meat industry. Active industrial sites and meat processing plants sat next to abandoned factories and vacant lots, just blocks from the decidedly utilitarian offerings along the main commercial strip. And you mentioned how Blockbuster video at discount grocery store in the post office were some of the only retail spaces that I, as a graduate student, and new mom was likely to likely to see. What we did have were higher than average rates of air pollution, parks with discarded needles, and a largely forgotten working class, low income immigrant population. To what degree was pollution, some sort of environmental racism or classism, at the heart of the area's problem? Was the problem was the main problem of the the area environmentalism? It was one of the main problems of the area in that a lot of those sites, like things like rubber um, processing plants and paint factories, they create a lot of like leaching into the ground. And so when um, developers would sort of come along and think, oh, you know, maybe something else could be built here. It was kind of like, well, there needs to be this like ton of environmental remediation to make sure that all of those like toxic, I don't know, benzenes and whatever um, that are that are in the ground are not going to be released um, by this work. So for a long time, it wasn't a very like attractive neighborhood for redevelopment of any kind, like market-based or or other, because it was seen as kind of too dangerous to start um, digging around. And certainly it was, like I say in the book, kind of an off-the-radar place. I had lived in, in and around Toronto my whole life. I'd never heard of that neighborhood until I lived there. It was very much like a, a kind of forgotten you know, out of the way, off the subway line kind of area. But it's interesting that some of those very features of it being kind of, you know, decrepit eventually created a, a sense that, okay, this is um, currently a low value, low priced neighborhood. And if it can be rehabilitated in some kind of way, the profit potential is is high. And so it really was kind of a matter of time before even neighborhoods like the Junction were uh, targeted for gentrification. And these areas were industrial, they were also residential and commercial, and all mixed together. How does gentrification affect communities where neighbors not only live together, but they shop at the same places and work nearby? Can that kind of uh, community in gentrified areas be replicated by gentrification or is that what gentrification does? It kind of strips away that idea of a community shopping together, living together and working together. It doesn't necessarily strip it away, but it remakes it for a different kind of community. So if you go to the junction today, you'll still see like a very active um, and long commercial retail strip, but many of the businesses that are there now definitely cater to um, a much higher income um, 
set of, of residents who have a different kind of, I don't know, cultural aesthetic, right? I mean, the kind of folks, no shade, I'm, I'm a vegetarian myself, but, you know, who want to eat in a raw food vegan restaurant, right? Which is a little bit different. I think I, I'm fair in saying than the, the kind of like retired immigrant working class population and their set of tastes. So in some ways, the the, the, the function of the different land uses is still there, but it's who they're for and who feels welcome in them that has changed over time. And you point out that the first few years offered up occasional signs of change in the junction, an interesting new business, a local event, but few seemed to stick. It was a little bit artsy, but far from it. But you add that change in the mid-2000s when a critical mass of new retail, I love that phrase, critical mass, of new retail and restaurant spaces uh, defined the neighborhood and uh, brought widespread attention to the neighborhood. Um, suddenly, the, ju- the junction was up and coming, Toronto's newest hot hood. So does gentrification sneak up on longtime residents? Is it welcomed at first, something new in the neighborhood? And the next thing you know, the neighborhood becomes gentrified and residents are priced out of the area? Yeah, I think in a lot of cases, it does kind of sneak up. It can be a slow process. And certainly historically, the forms of gentrification that were first identified were this kind of slow, almost organic-like process, kind of household by household uh, block by block, slow, uh, maybe not even noticeable at at first. And yeah, sometimes the changes are welcome, at least by some segment of the neighborhood who um, maybe you know want more variety of grocery stores to shop in, for example, or or um, a, a different set of like kind of community meeting spaces of of cafes and you know, the local pubs and those kinds of things. So at first it might seem like there's a a greater mix of things happening, but often what we see is that the change kind of doesn't stop there. It continues to steamroll into what some people have called like a, a new wave of gentrification where some of those, you know, interesting new cafes and so on start to change into corporate branded coffee shops, like a Starbucks, for example, um, the the small businesses can no longer afford their commercial rents. And again, we start seeing kind of global chain businesses taking over. And so some of that unique character of the neighborhood, along with its affordability, starts to um, fade away as, you know, the, the, the prices and the um, uh, the services that are being offered in uh, those places no longer meet the needs of the original community. There's a uh, 2009 New York Times article headlined Skid Row to Hip in Toronto that you cite. The article encapsulated what you uh, call a Cinderella narrative that, like the fairy tale, relies on a contrast between the before and after. And this and other articles like it, the old junction was described as withered, a grimy Skid Row, a toxic wreck, too crappy to fix, stuck in the past, declining. By portraying the neighborhood as damaged, abandoned, and dirty, the changes brought by gentrification come to seem necessary good and welcome. Describing the uh, neighborhood as a place in need of saving makes gentrification into a hero. But is that the only hero offered gentrification? Is that the only choice? And is it the only way you can fix a city or neighborhood that, say, is experiencing toxic pollution? Is gentrification the only option that is offered to us? And can it work? 
I think if you listen to a lot of uh, kind of city growth boosters, if you will, the the um, people who see economic uh, growth and and uh, you know the the capitalist land market as the driver of change, if you listen to them, then yes, gentrification is like the often the only option that's offered up. Sometimes they won't use that term because it has, you know, a bit of a uh, well, not a bit, I mean, has a connotation of this means class change. It's literally built right into the word itself. So you might hear terms like renewal, revitalization, regeneration, these kind of softer, fuzzier words that um, kind of tell you that that change is coming. But yeah, we, I think, are very much inculcated into the idea that the only way that improvements can happen in a, a sort of what gets portrayed anyways as a down and out neighborhood is through private investment. And without that, it's seen as well, then we're just going to let the neighborhood decay. And people will say, well, you know, don't, don't the people in that neighborhood deserve nice things? Don't they want a nice coffee shop or a craft brewery or an organic grocery store or yoga studio, or even just like a green space and um, fixed uh, sidewalks, right? Like basic infrastructure will say, don't, don't communities deserve that? And, uh, you know, to those of us who are anti-gentrification, you know, we say, yes, of course, communities deserve that. But why is the only way to get those changes through private investment? And so this is where I think we have to really challenge our local governments and state um, governments to think differently about how they want to uh, create change and reinvestment in places that have often been kind of forgotten about and, and do need um, investment of some sort, right? They do need attention uh, to improve the, the, the quality of life for the folks living there. But the question is, how can we do that without then displacing the very people who have asked for the changes that they that they want? Right. That's what I was just about to ask you is, do you think the people, the re- the new residents who are moving into the area, who may not be somebody who is necessarily pro-gentrification, but do you think that they recognize or realize that they are in the process, they are uh, playing a very major role in the process of gentrification? Do they recognize the impact of their presence on a community and how it displaces the past community? I think increasingly people do because gentrification is no longer just kind of academic jargon or something that you would hear whispered about in the you know, halls of planning offices. It's a term that a, a lot of people recognize, right? And a lot of people do ask themselves like, am I a gentrifier? Maybe I'm a bit of a gentrifier. Maybe I don't have a ton of money, but I'm white and I work in the culture industry and, you know, I I like um, $5 coffees or avocado on toast. Maybe I'm part of the problem here. And I think it's good to ask that question, but I don't think that everybody who moves into a a neighborhood where the the rent is a little cheaper, the, the price of housing is a little cheaper is automatically a gentrifier. But I think people don't necessarily know what they can do to not be a gentrifier or not be seen as a gentrifier. You also point out that few in the junction, few seem concerned about the fate of those who might no longer be welcome or who would be priced out of their community. A scroll through the comment sections on local blogs revealed little sympathy for those residents. In fact, commenters seemed sure that once the greasy spoons, grimy donut shops, and vacant lots disappeared, the quote-unquote freak show, as one person described the presence of 
people experiencing mental illnesses, homelessness, and disabilities would be leaving town. Is the point of gentrification to push those stricken with poverty and without necessary uh, social services, is the, is the point of gentrification to move those people out of the area? Is that an intentional project of gentrification to move those who are stricken with poverty out of the area? Today, I would say yes. Maybe not in kind of the first forms of gentrification that were observed, where again, it was kind of household by household. But today, where so much gentrification is deliberately facilitated by state policy or the lack of state policy um, in, in some cases where and where it is actively pursued by uh, private interests, everyone from, you know, local development firms, landlords to, you know, transnational corporations who want to invest in, in real estate markets, I would say, yes, it is deliberate because uh, unfortunately those people are seen as, um, a, a black mark against, you know, property values and and what is the, the you know, you you ask the everyone from the middle class homeowner to those billion dollar investment firms, like the the mantra, the holy grail is property value, property value, property value, and anything that seems to work against an ever increasing property value is seen as a problem, and often that gets embodied by those people that we. Um, don't take care of, right? People experiencing homelessness, people in the shelter system, people who are in very low incomes or precariously housed, um, people dealing with uh, addiction. These groups are seen as they are causing the problem, not groups who are um, experiencing problems that, that the system has caused for them. These are people who do not benefit from the profits that are going to be made through gentrification. So is is gentrification undemocratic? And if uh, gentrification is imposed by outsiders on residents who do not have a choice, how dependent is gentrification on not having to go through any kind of democratic process? That's such a great question. Yeah, I think it's incredibly undemocratic. And yes, it does very much depend on the um, uh, lack of or very weak democratic and consultative processes that are in place because in in many cases the uh community doesn't feel like they have very much choice right they they feel as though new developments or uh changes are happening without any input from them uh whether those are changes being brought by the city itself or by structures that exist they they can kind of pump the brakes on gentrification i write about the pilsen neighborhood in chicago which it's definitely experiencing gentrification and, and some would say is gentrified, but they have a long history now of every time a new development proposal comes up, like the community turns out to those meetings. They let their older people know like what they want and don't want. And the message is very clear that if you want to develop in Pilsen, like you are, are going to have to go through um, a community consultation process. It's not going to be a walk in the park to come in and build a new condominium development, for example. So where robust de democratic structures exist or people have the resources to avail themselves of them, they can um, at least slow down gentrification or have a greater say in what kind of developments are happening. So if this is the government working with private investors to stimulate an economic sector through gentrification, 
how important is gentrification to the economy? Because this same kind of thing uh, came up in a recent conversation about the growth of the internet and how it was not unregulated or deregulated, but had government regulations that were best for the private sector, that this was a public-private partnership. It wasn't just the market uh, with free reign when it came to the internet. And it sounds like this is the same situation with gentrification, that like the internet, there was a public-private partnership when it comes to gentrification. So how important has gentrification become to a city's economy? I think super important, right? Especially if you look at cities um, in the global north where there's been a shift away from, you know, kind of manufacturing and, and production as the primary basis of the economy towards what we call, you know, the post-industrial economy, the knowledge sector, the service sector, the um, conduit through which capital flows and increases in value is not factory production, it's real estate. Marx talked about this way back when, right? He said that would be the second circuit of capital. And we're definitely in an age where that second circuit of capital, real estate, is the way in which urban space essentially is commodified and capitalized on. And gentrification is a process that, you know, seeks to increase the the value of of all kinds of properties, residential, commercial, and otherwise in the city. So yeah, I think um, the the uh, wealth and growth of, of cities and their economic power uh, is very much tied to gentrification. You know, the example of, of New York under Mayor Bloomberg, where he described New York City as a luxury product. He said, this isn't Walmart. New York is a luxury product, right? It was a very clear kind of declaration of um that the, the kind of new development that he was encouraging in the city through planning regulations uh, was designed to um, bring in a luxury market, right, in terms of the kind of people who would be uh, buying and investing in those spaces. So do governments always side with gentrification? Is the, on, is the only bulwark against uh, gentrification community organizing, like the community organizing you were just talking about that's taking place here in Pilsen? Is, is, is it always the government versus the community when it comes to gentrification? Uh, maybe not 100% of the time. Um, I, I think there are cases where governments, especially maybe at the moment where there is increasing recognition. And again, we see this in cities in many parts of the world of a housing crisis of which gentrification is one part and governments finally saying, oh yeah, like we actually have to do something about this. And so being willing, even on sort of short-term bases to put uh, policies in place to, you know, limit the spread of gentrification, whether those include like rent stabilization, anti-eviction measures, or more long-term things like supporting community land trusts that, you know, enable nonprofit organizations in partnership with city governments to have a say over the form of development that is going to be occurring in their community. So I think in some cases, governments recognize that, you know, runaway gentrification is um, not what they want to see, but uh, community pressure, I think, is almost always important for getting governments to look seriously at the problem. We are speaking with Leslie Kern, author of Gentrification is Inevitable and Other Lies. Is gentrification the privatization of not only public space, but the way we think of urban policy and government, for that matter, which is more of a privatized state than a public commons? Is this what the right has always wanted, and now apparently many liberals do as well, that is 
government, in this case, the government of a city being run like a business? Yeah, very much so. I mean, there is so much resistance to even kind of the smallest government measures to um, limit gentrification or regulate out, right? And that we will all be sorted into the housing that we rightfully afford based on our own, you know, uh, bootstrapism or quote unquote hard work or just, you know, kind of what we deserve based on our social status. And, and there's, you know, seems to be a, that, that kind of neoliberal line of thinking that, you know, we're all responsible for uh, basically everything that, that happens to us or that we attain in this, in this world and, and housing, uh, you know, kind of is, is no different in that point of view, unlike, you know, what I would uh, argue for, which would be the idea that like housing is a human right and uh, everybody should be entitled to it. So, uh... You also mentioned that um, this, well, hold a second, let me get back to my notes real quick. You write that when we talk about those who experience displacement, loss, exclusion, and violence, we must pay attention to differences that terms such as the working class or minorities can gloss over. If displacement affects everybody differently, how difficult is to address displacement when it has so many uh, possible outcomes? I mean, you, you talk about how displacement isn't just about class. This just this isn't just a class issue. It's more than that. It's about gender. It's about race. It's about colonialism. It's about ability. It's about age. It's about sexuality and class. So I guess my bigger question is, what do we miss in our understanding of gentrification when we only see it as class? I think what we miss is the way that um, capitalism, neoliberalism is incredibly good at making use of the pre-existing social hierarchies that we create, whether it's around gender, race, sexuality, ability, and um, exploiting those those differences to um, propel gentrification forward. So if we you know look at the example of race and and cities you know in the United States but also to some extent here in Canada where things like redlining or you know long-term segregation of communities based on race created a, a scenario where racial minority communities were really disinvested for a long period of time now as gentrification starts to creep into those places um those communities are are facing uh you know dispossession of the very places that they work so hard to sustain and maintain through decades of, of racism and redlining and, and disinvestment. So we kind of have this compounding of, you know, insult to injury, but it's not only about class, right? That movement of capital into those spaces is propelled by the fact that racial difference and the hierarchies that we create around it um, made those areas lower valued in in the first place. So I think it's important to, to look at all of these differences. As you mentioned in your question, it, it might mean that that's maybe a little more complex than we can get into when we come to, I don't know, talk to our local planning office about a new development that's going on. But I think nonetheless, we can point out the, the way in which um, gentrification is kind of um, you know a, a violation of the rights of, of many different groups, not just those who are assumed to not be able to afford to um, pay the rent in a particular place. You mentioned nine myths of gentrification. You start with the myth that gentrification is natural. We were discussing earlier how undemocratic the process is. Do you think there's a sense that gentrification is natural because 
we rarely have a say in projects that promote gentrification. Is Does it seem natural because there is no democracy involved? Yeah, I think that's part of the problem in that, yeah, we, we don't really have in most places like a robust set of systems and, and practices that allow communities to have greater say over the development that happens there, especially those with less power, right? I mean, there are some groups of, of homeowners or business owners that have quite a, a lot of say in things, but it's not necessarily based on democratic principles, more on you know power and and influence. But yeah, that that's part of why it seems natural. I think also <clears throat> there's this sort of, I don't know, sense that somehow um, cities are on like some kind of linear growth track and the trajectory always is going to go from um, lower class or or less wealthy to higher class and, and more wealthy and that that is just somehow the, the normal trajectory of how cities work. Um, and, and partly that's because a lot of the like decisions and policies that are behind the, the changes that we do see in cities, they're not very visible to us, right? They most people, you know, they they don't spend a lot of time thinking about how urban zoning regulations are impacting the direction of development. So it can also kind of seem natural because we're hiding the fact that very real decisions and, and people making those decisions are part of the um, process of why the changes that we do see happening are happening and not others. Another myth about gentrification that you offer is gentrification, gentrification is good for the city. Is gentrification good for the city's bottom line, good for metrics that Wall Street uses to determine what is good or not good for investors, but not necessarily for the people of the, for the city? Is gentrification good for metrics that, the, that Wall Street might be interested in, but not necessarily good for the residents of a city? Definitely. I mean, you can't turn on any um, news program uh, come to the, the business or the financial news section and not hear something about housing, right? About housing prices, because so much of the economy, especially in countries like ours that are, you know, kind of super focused on home ownership, so much of the economy is um, tied to the, the value of housing and whether those values are going up and down. So yeah, Wall Street is going to be looking at, at those factors and and whether you know investment in housing is on the rise or or on the decrease but yeah for for everyday people in cities um you know it's kind of a mixed bag because a lot of us if you are a homeowner like especially in the US and Canada we we do depend on our home as like a social safety net right we've been taught that you know you become a homeowner and your home will kind of like take care of you eventually so don't blame individual homeowners for kind of caring about the value of their property because that's just the the system that we've been um, like kind of ideologically and structurally forced into. But for many people, especially those who rent or who are more precariously housed, um, those rising home values are a real problem. And now increasingly, even for homeowners with like interest rates going up and so on, we're we're seeing more and more people in the so-called middle class and maybe even upper middle class really struggling with the, the price of housing and the huge chunk of their household budget that is being directed to housing. And you write of an individual's impact on gentrification. You write that another myth is gentrification is caused by hipsters and uh, artists. Artists have been categorized by some as first wave gentrifiers. 
Do you think the negative connotations around hipsters are driven by shifting the blame on gentrification from structural issues, from systemic issues, from institutional issues, from the role that the government plays alongside of the private sector? Is this all about is blaming hipsters? Are these negative connotations that we have about hipsters right now? Is that all about shifting the blame on gentrification? Yeah, I think so. It's it's partly because, you know, the 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 new face in in your neighborhood, the face of the hipster or whatever, it's easier to kind of look at at that person and assign blame to them. They are literally a, a figure with a face, whereas often those government forces and even more so with the the private sector forces that are behind gentrification, they don't really have a face to us. And that's quite deliberate on their part, right? They don't really want us to know who's in in charge and um you know, who's making the decisions there. So it's uh, easier to kind of point the finger at the people that are like literally in in our neighborhood with us, even though for the most part, those people, you know, they're not billion dollar investors, right? Who are tearing down whole blocks to build luxury apartment buildings. They're people who were maybe pushed out of their last neighborhood because they couldn't afford the rent anymore either. You also point out that gent- uh, another myth is uh, gentrification happens at the neighborhood level. So what is the impact on the city as a whole when gentrification happens? I, I live in a neighborhood that it is not yet gentrified, but surrounded by gentrification. How might I be affected by gentrification despite it not yet coming to my neighborhood? How might people even in the suburbs be affected by the gentrification of a city? Yeah, I mean, you just need to have a you know, not even a very sophisticated understanding of of how you know kind of capitalism works to uh, to to figure that that out, and and that's that capitalism works by always looking for the greatest possible profit margin. So in those neighborhoods around you, for example, that are already gentrified, um, the potential of new development coming in there, you know, the price of land is already higher than it once was, and the potential for Um, greater profit margins is less than pre-gentrification. Now your neighborhood, it's like, hmm, okay, Uh, the land values are pretty low there at the moment. So if gentrification can happen, then we have the greater potential for profit. So it's kind of this circulation, right? Always looking for the next so-called quote unquote frontier of where gentrification can happen. And even for suburban areas, we, we can see kind of gentrification pressure there, as well as in some areas that what's been called the suburbanization of poverty, where people have been uh, pushed out of the city altogether and suburban areas are the only places where they can find semi-affordable housing. You, there's also the myth uh, that gentrification is all about class. You write that today the working class being displaced includes high numbers of women-headed households, recent immigrants, and racial minorities. Gentrification's biggest winners are those who control the development and real estate industries, a group that is mostly white and male. It, it, it is no longer adequate to say that gentrification is about class. Is gentrification more than anything? about power, the power of the government working alongside the private sector to create demand and policies that are beneficial to the gentrification sector, if you will, is is gentrification more than anything about power? Yeah, I, I think so. I think that's a great way of putting it, right? That ultimately gentrification is about power and the, the groups of people and, and organizations and institutions in society that have the power to essentially take over space and remake it uh, either in their own image or in ways that serve their own, usually economic, but also sometimes social and cultural interests. So 
it, in that sense, it's, you know, class power, financial power is one aspect of that, but the system also, or the, the process of gentrification also works through, um, you know, exacerbating other forms of power, racial power, um, gender power, and, and so on to uh, target people who are already more vulnerable in, in society and who may have less resources to fight back. You also point to the myth that gentrification improves minority neighborhoods. And you write that while some home homeowners see their property values rise, this can lead to displacement as property taxes and other expenses also climb. And what about renters and public housing residents? In cities all over the world, people describe a hostile takeover of their communities by, by white or other dominant racial groups who seek to quell the Sights, sounds, flavors, smells, and activities of longtime residents. These residents report feeling like strangers in their own neighborhoods. What do you think is behind this insistence that a neighborhood you were attracted to must change? What leads to such a demand by newcomers to a long-standing community? Why would you move to a neighborhood because it has all these things that attracted you to it, and then once you get there, you're like, those things got to change? Yeah, well, I mean, how much time do we have to sort of discuss how uh, white supremacy <laughs> works, basically, right? Um, although, you know, yeah, racial power is not the only form of power happening there. But I think in, in many cases, it is where there is this, as you say, this kind of like desire for something, quote unquote, different desire for the other to kind of consume and take up things that seem uh, different or interesting in some way. But uh, ultimately, when usually like, you know, white, new white, white residents move into a neighborhood, the things that seemed charming from a distance um, are no longer as um, charming to them, whether that's the sound of the kind of music being played, the food being cooked, the activities taking place on the street. Um, and, and let's face it, there's a deeply rooted, again, ideologically and structurally based uh, fear of racialized minorities that uh, white people are are uh, brought up with and continually inculcated with through the media uh, pretty much every single day. So um, that, you know, presumed like utopia of, of diversity that people say they want really only exists in, in their mind because the um, that sense of fear and, and otherness um, you know, may lead them to act in very hostile ways towards the neighbors that they once seemed so enthusiastic to live beside. You mentioned another myth that gentrification is the new colonialism. You add what these metaphors miss, however, is that the old colonialism is still here. Is gentrification evidence that colonialism is not something of the past and it is still thriving with the same old public-private partnership? Is, is gentrification just proof positive that colonialism has never, ever gone away, that we shouldn't be calling it neo-colonialism, we should just be calling it the same old colonialism? Yes, again, in, in our countries, in the U.S. and Canada, settler um, colonial countries where the colonizers never left, Private property, right, is a major way in which settler colonial power continues to be consolidated. And gentrification is all about private property ownership and the commodification of that private property. So, yeah, I think it is a continuation of those processes that continues to, you know, keep Indigenous people from being able to make claims to their territories and, and consolidates that, you know, white colonial uh, sovereign power. You also mentioned the myth that gentrification helps women. 
Uh, you write that uh, uh, feminists have long argued that city life is preferable for women. The close proximity of employment, schools, services, and transportation makes it possible for women to juggle their multiple roles as carers, caretakers, and workers. Gentrification as a back-to-the-city movement would seem to be a solution for women's woes, but any good feminist will stop and ask which women benefit from this and which women don't. Is a foundation of feminism recognizing the consequences of your actions and what impact those actions may have on others? Is there a constant consideration of who benefits and who does not within feminism? Because I've always thought of myself as a feminism, and now I definitely want to sign on because there isn't a lot of th- talk in, in nowadays about what the consequences are of your actions. Yes, to me, that foundational element is the intersectional approach, right? So not just looking at how a particular um, law, institution, uh, set of social changes are going to benefit women who are already fairly privileged, for example, white heterosexual married professional women in the case of gentrification who who may well um, experience some of those benefits that 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 you described in the section that you read but that intersectional approach means asking okay how does this affect low-income women women experiencing homelessness uh recent immigrant women disabled women uh single parents women who are public housing residents and when we start to expand that that point of view, then this category of women who benefit from gentrification uh, turns out to probably be a pretty narrow category. So, no, I don't think we can call a gentrification a kind of a feminist win, even if there are, you know, a small section of women who may experience some benefits, but it's off the back of, of other women and other marginalized groups. We have been speaking with Leslie Kern, author of Gentrification is Inevitable and Other Lies. Follow Leslie on Twitter at Lely K, that's L-E-L-L-Y, then the letter K. Check out Leslie's Substack, perfectly cromulent, at lesliekern.substack.com. One last question for you, Leslie, and as we do with all of our guests, our final question is what we call the question from hell, the question we hate to ask, you may hate to answer, our audience is going to hate your response. You write, it is easy to recognize the trauma of forced displacement for refugees from war and natural disaster. It seems much harder, however, to acknowledge the harm of the everyday dislocations that occur all across our cities. What does it say about us, reveal about us, when we have sympathy for those who are displaced by war and natural disaster, but not of those displaced by government policy prioritizing the private sector through gentrification? I I think... It says about us that we have a deep need to believe that it couldn't be us, right? That we've made the right choices. And if we're not the ones being displaced by evictions or rising rents or um, public housing uh, redevelopment, then it's because we did the right thing and because we deserve what we have. And when we see it happening to other people in our community, we want to believe that it's because of their bad choices, or maybe if we feel particularly sympathetic, a little bit of bad luck. So what does it say about us? I think we we have a need to um, feel that we uh, have, have succeeded in some way or that we are, um, you know, better than, than others and we've made the right choices. And I think that's, again, part of the kind of capitalist ideology that we are so uh, swimming in all the time. 
Uh, quite a swim it is, too. Leslie, thank you so much for being on our show today. As I was saying at the beginning, this really is, talks about gentrification in a lot of ways that we have not discussed it in the past, despite us being on the show on the air now for 26 years. So thank you so much for bringing a, a different perspective on gentrification to us today. Thank you so much, and I'll be annoying you in the future because I've really enjoyed our conversation. Thank you. It was great to be here. Take care. Take care. This is not the media. This is hell. And you know this is not the media because there is absolutely no way what you just heard from Leslie Kern on the myths of gentrification, on what gentrification is and what it is not. There's no way you would hear that conversation anywhere else but here on This Is Hell. If what you just heard from Leslie on gentrification made you realize that, yes, this really is hell, show your support by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. There you will see how you can... Sign up for our Patreon podcast at patreon.com slash thisishell, which uh, streams live this week on Thursday at 10 a.m. Chicago time. Podcast shortly after the same place, patreon.com slash thisishell. When you do become a subscriber to This Is Hell on Patreon, not only do you get a special code word giving you a discount on all of our merchandise that you find right now at thisishell.com, but you also get 350 past Patreon podcasts with new monologues by me and our uh, uh, interviews from our archives new monologue by me, and interviews from our archives that have never or are not available anywhere else online. On last week's Patreon podcast, I am probably not the best person to do any kind of self-diagnosis of my physical or mental well-being. In fact, I have a horrible record at doing so, especially of late, as I convinced myself I was fine despite having a chronically recurring ailment, an ailment that landed me in the hospital earlier this year and nearly killed me, yet I thought it was nothing serious. That is, until my doctor told me I had a 60 40 chance of surviving but hell if i'm going to allow that to get in my way of yet again conducting a self-diagnosis my latest self-diagnosed issue suggests that the u.s healthcare system can be very bad for your health even being the cause of debilitating trauma also on patreon we played our february 2006 conversation with historian john prados who passed away on november 29th uh, he was a senior fellow at the National Security Archives in Washington, D.C. John was on to talk at the time about his article that had just been published called Big Brother's History. But you can only hear yet another one of my horrible self-diagnoses, as well as a condemnation of the cruel and unusual U.S. healthcare system in an interview with the document-digging historian John Prados by subscribing to This Is Hell on Patreon at patreon.com slash thisishell. Sebastian, please remind us, what is this week's question from Hell? And tell us how our listeners are responding so far. Uh, this week's question from Hell is, what tiny, normally inconsequential thing that someone does in your close proximity is the straw that breaks the pre-crest pre-Christmas slash holiday stress-powered camel's back, making you fly so thoroughly off the handle that you make national news. <laughs> uh, Dan K. responds, Wish me happy Hanukkah, like they're being ecumenical and inclusive. Okay. Yeah. Adam A. says, This seems a little bit too specific. I'm guessing either Chuck or Sebastian need an actual holiday. Uh, <laughs> not, not, not wrong, even though I just came back from Hawaii. Like, it feels like I just came back from Hawaii. But yeah, like but you know what? You need a vacation from vacation sometimes. I mean, yeah, that's true. Um, Kelly H. says, Catch COVID. <laughs> I mean, yeah, I, I get that. If people in your close proximity catch COVID, but that's not that's not small and inconsequential. No, that's a big deal. Yeah, um, I mean, at least it should be. Anyway, uh, Bradley R says these questions really are getting more hellish, as in the tenth circle of language torment reserved for the overly verbose. Yes, thank you. <laughs> um, and then Mark 
Mark S. writes, Years ago, I performed a series of photomicrographs of diatoms from the Lompoc, California deposit. This is the world's largest deposit of diatomite, roughly 5,000 feet thick, and represents the sediment of an ocean environment from 10 million years ago and older. The, depos the deposit is also a major petroleum oil-bearing region. The oil is the spilled guts of trillions upon trillions of once-living diatoms. The diatoms I photographed are their empty skeletons. When I walk into any store and see how many stupid plastic doodads have been manufactured to serve the gods of commerce at Christmas, I imagine countless trillions of tiny ghosts screaming <laughs> to the Lord God in outrage at the waste. The pond scum of a billion years cries out against the commercialism of Christmas. Very good. Wow, Mark. <laughs> early, wow. Early contender. Yeah, really early contender. Any more? Uh, yes, one more. Aaron, Aaron D. writes, uh, when they bring me some figgy pudding, I go ballistic. <laughs> Manufacturing descent since 1996. This is Hal. It's now time for Dr. Sebastian Vopper and the past inside the present. When Sebastian, who has a Ph.D. in history, gives us a historical context from the past that we need to have a better understanding of our present. Sebastian, take it away. The past inside the present. When it comes to countries, nation-states, that have odd relationships with each other, few stand in a weirder and more awkward kind of tension than my home country, Germany, does with the state of Israel. For mostly well-understandable reasons. After all, my grandparents' generation tried their very best uh, to murder the grandparents' generation of many present-day Israelis. So today, Germany is one of the culturally most, well, basically Zionist countries in the world. Defending Israel's right to exist and the country's security is supposedly one of the reasons for the modern German nation-state to exist. Personally, I do like the position that no single nation-state on Earth has a right to exist because nation-states are essentially legal fictions, but that's beside the point. And also, hat tip to Adam Johnson of the Citation Needed podcast, who I first heard making this point. Uh, and Germany is virulently, German, Germanently, Germany today is virulently pro-Israel and just as virulently anti-Palestine. Palestinians in Germany are generally not seen as having any legitimate concerns, much less legitimate reasons to dislike, much less hate or act against Israel. Palestinians are at best seen as smelly savages for uh, who may or may not have intercourse with their goats, um, who have been instrumental instrumentalized by the Arab world, and are too stupid to think for themselves. At worst, they are all—they uh, all want to just butcher every last Jew in the in the world, and also believe that Hitler didn't go far enough, and are one and all dangerous cr criminals. Historically, the relationship between post-war Germany and Israel is pretty fascinating in its multifaceted awfulness. After the defeat of Nazi Germany, uh, uh, the, the, the country was split in two. The western-facing Federal Republic of Germany, or West Germany, as a free market capitalist country uh, with the United States as, as its most important partner, and uh, the eastern-facing German Democratic Republic, or East Germany, with the um, USSR as their respective most important ally and partner. Both West and East Germany claimed for themselves the mantle of rightful inheritor um, and true Germany. West Germany quickly tried to get into Israel's good graces. The first chancellor of West Germany, Konrad Adenauer, sought to pay reparations. In German 
In German, these were called Wiedergutmachungszahlungen, literally payments to make good again. In Israel, this act was received quite badly. Thousands took to the street protesting, accusing the government of selling out their murdered families and allowing Germany to essentially buy themselves out of their guilt and responsibility. In the official state language of Israel, the accords um, that 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 uh, reign, that that governed these um, uh, reparations payment lacked any of the positive connotations they had in the German language. But Israel's government had officially asked the United States to push West Germany for reparations. The Israeli government initially refused to approach the Nazi successor states directly, and uh, the West German government had been quite forthcoming in this regard. Things went quite different in East Germany. Since East Germany had emerged from the Soviet occupation zone, the country was essentially a satellite state of the USSR, and the country Stalinized pretty quickly. And uh, Stalin, in his later years, wasn't too happy with the Jews and became himself taken by anti-Semitic conspiracy theories. After his death in 1953, the official positions of the Eastern Bloc on Jews softened somewhat, but the relationship with, with Israel remained rather tense. And for East Germany, things in this regard were especially awkward. As the Cold War spun up, the West German government declared that the country... West Germany would cut any economic and diplomatic ties with any third country that recognized East Germany's legitimacy. And Israel had officially approached the USSR as the senior ally of the East German state about reparations, but the East German government brushed those requests aside since Israel did not officially recognize East Germany because of, you know, like if they did, West Germany would cut diplomatic ties with them. And since West Germany held the position that anybody who recognized, yeah, so this would not change easily. Um, this situation then had the effect that East Germany established diplomatic and economic ties with various Arab states, which m meant that the country allied itself with the sworn enemies of the state of Israel. But the enmity towards Israel from these countries came not just because Israel was, was a Jewish state, but also because of Israel's close connections to the U.S. And in a way, this was also in line with the general position of the East German government towards the Holocaust. In East German remembrance, the main victims of the Nazi terror regime were communists and political opposition and, uh, and, and people in political opposition to the regime. Jews and other non-political victim, victims were recognized as also having been harmed by the regime's actions. However, their plight weighed less in official recognition. And in that, in that uh, regard, Israel then, due to its ties to the United States, was increasingly seen as a satellite of the U.S. and of American fascism and imperialism. The East German position was also that Zionism itself was an inherently fascistic concept that was fueled by elitist aggression. In East German rhetoric, Israel was then frequently equated with the Nazi regime. As the Cold War prog uh, progressed, the relationship between the two German states and Israel underwent some further changes. East Germany support, uh, supported the Palestinian struggle for independence, both materially with money and weapon shipments, as well as diplomatically. And West Germany remained a strong supporter and eventually also diplomatic ally of Israel. East Germany eventually changed course again in the 1980s as East Germany's economy was stagnating and over the fall uh, and, and only after the, the, the fall of the wall and a few weeks before East Germany ceased to exist as a sovereign, sovereign nation state did the newly elected German, uh, East German government officially apologize for the Holocaust and, uh, the per per and the continued persecution of Jewish people in the early years of communist Germany. Today the German position is that 
being a strong partner and ally of Israel is, as I mentioned initially, one of the reasons for Germany's very existence. It is further the official German position that Zionism is essential to Judaism and that the Jewish community cannot exist without Zionism at, as its, at its core. It is also the official German position that anti-Zionism is always also anti-Semitism. This is not the view of some individual political parties. This is essentially the defining mainstream position of Germany as a whole and the German people towards Israel. There are some voices in the country that question whether Germany, more than 70 years after the Shoah, uh, the Holocaust, still has a responsibility towards Israel. But those are not opinions that can be voiced without causing a harsh backlash. Historian of genocide and settler colonialism, A. Dirk, a. Dirk Moses, called, uh, calls this the German catechism, a set of religiously held beliefs that serve as blinders and as much as they act as blocks to, to discourse and discussion. And this catechism, according to Moses, and I fully agree with him here, holds that the Holocaust was a singular... So I, I agree with, with him that, that this is what, what is at the core of the German-Israel relationship these days uh, and he says that at that that there's five points um and the first point is that the holocaust was a singular unique event that cannot and must not be compared to other genocides german intelligentsia basically got their knickers in a twist when foreign historians analyzed and connections between german colonial genocides in africa in the early 20th century and the holocaust later for example because the holocaust is essentially sacrosanct but the holocaust and the remembrance of it as well uh, as, as the responsibility for it serves as the foundation of modern German civilization. That's the second point. Therefore, questioning the Holocaust in any way, and this is not at all limited to outright Holocaust denial, by the way. This is a stance that forbids any sort of analysis of the Holocaust, really, especially when it comes to comparative approaches, is basically seen as heresy. Germany, therefore, has an eternal and, social, uh, eternal and special responsibility towards the Jewish people in Germany, but is also obligated to hold near unconditional loyalty and has to understand ensuring the security and safety of Israel is one of the reasons for the German state's existence. It's basically the, the, the reason why Germany has a quote-unquote right to exist. Germans were, after all, the worst anti-Semites there ever were, and anti-Semitism is a specifically German problem. But anti-Semitism must not be confused with racism. And lastly, the conviction, uh, and lastly, the last point of the German, cate of the German catechism is that anti-Zionism is always anti-Semitism. And basically, with the fall of the Berlin Wall and the global defeat of communism, uh, all the arguments that communist countries leveled against Israel, no matter how, you know, poignant they might have been, were also essentially defeated, especially in Germany. Now, basically, any criticism of the Jewish state makes one open to accusations of anti-Semitism, especially in left-wing circles, which makes for a really strange experience when one emigrates from Germany to the US as a leftist, and suddenly the comrades from back home sound like Fox News, and uh, only in the question of Israel, of course. And the new comrade, comrades one, one makes over here make arguments that would get them shunned as anti-Semites back home. So who has it right here? I mean, that's not really for me to say. My personal position is that us Germans do indeed have a special historical responsibility for the crimes of our grandparents' generation. But we also must be able to research genocides and include the Holocaust as one of many horrible events, not as the one singular and awful thing. 
And when we see one of our friends and allies, in the case of Israel, behave in ways that we find objectionable, we have to be able to voice our concerns and intervene, especially when, well, the communists had some pretty good points there, because Israel is a creature of American imperialism, and Zionism is a racist doctrine. And running what amounts to an ethnostate is something that always is only a few steps removed from fascism and racist violence. And Palestinians are not all anti-Semitic terrorists whenever they voice criticism of Israel at home or abroad. <sighs> and now I'll see how many of my German friends cancel our friendships, because in their eyes, I just outed myself as not anti-Semite. Because, well, this is hell, I guess. <laughs> so, uh... That's a slippery slope. That's a, it, I always just think of the way that uh, Germany has uh, a, a problem with anti-Semitism uh, and the denial at times of the Holocaust. They also, here in the United States, we have this issue with trying to deny our past when it comes to slavery and its role in the building of this country. Uh, I think they're just kind of similar in some ways. Uh, I mentioned earlier that the This Is Hell office party is happening on the first day of winter, Wednesday, uh, December 21st. That is the winter solstice, and we will be having the This Is Hell holiday office party on the winter solstice, Wednesday, December 21st at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's Westridge neighborhood. And I mentioned that every person who does attend will get a special gift. And uh, we want to thank Jordan Rollins, who donated a lot of copies of his book, E is for Erotica, which is written by listener Jordan Rollins, uh, with illustrations done by F.C. Brent. Everybody attending will get a free copy of E is for Erotica. Thanks to Jordan for sending us enough copies so we can give one to each and every person who joins us for the This Is Hell holiday office party. What is E is for Erotica? Well, do you think you know your ABCs? You never learned them like these. Learn your ABCs all over again with this hilarious illustrated Dr. Seuss for Adults, a body Shel Silverstein-inspired alphabet book, and what sounds like it's going to be open for a lot of lawsuits by employing the names of Dr. Seuss and Shel Silverstein. Each letter is brought to life with rhyming ribald verse and embellished with titillating cartoon art, a fun way to surprise friends and family at gift-giving occasions, bridal showers, white elephant or secret Santa gift exchanges, and a shocking addition to your coffee table. So you will get a copy of Ears for Erotica if you join us at the This Is Hell Holiday Office Party, which is happening on Wednesday, December 21st, the Winter Solstice at Carrie's Lounge, 2251 West Devon Avenue in Chicago's Westridge neighborhood, beginning at 6 p.m. Sebastian, who is our next guest here on This Is Hell? Our next guest is Michael Hawthorne, uh, who will be on to talk about his investigation into Forever Chemicals. Um, the investigation is titled Forever Chemicals. They're in your drinking water and likely your food. Michael is a Pulitzer Prize finalist, uh, investigative reporter who focuses on the environment and public health for the Chicago Tribune. And then after Michael, who's our final guest on this the week's show? final guest of this week is Stefania Maurizzi, uh, author of Secret Power, WikiLeaks, and Its Enemies. Stefania is an Italian investigative journalist working for the daily Il Fatto Quotidiano. She began working with 
Julian Assange in WikiLeaks in 2009 for her newspaper. Uh, among international journalists, she is the only one who has worked on the entirety of the WikiLeaks secret documents and the only one who has conducted a multi-jurisdictional litigation to defend the right of the press to access the full documentation on the WikiLeaks case. Uh, also coming up this week in Rotten History, we'll reveal what is happening on this week's Patreon podcast, which streams live on Thursday at patreon.com slash thisishell. We will hear a singular moment of truth from Jeff Dorchin, and we'll announce the winner of this week's question from hell, who will get their choice of This Is Hell merchandise. You can see all of our stuff right now by going to thisishell.com and clicking on support. Earlier, I said we need your help listeners and what we need your help with is well beginning next monday december 19th and throughout the upcoming holidays running through the first week of 2023 we will be playing the 10 best shows of 2022 featuring your 10 favorite guests of the year beginning on monday December 19th, and again, running through the first week of 2023. And we want to know what your favorite shows were this year. Who were your favorite guests over the past 12 months? This is your chance to program This Is Hell for the final two weeks of 2022 and the first week of 2023. Email us your favorite shows or guests, your favorite moment of truth, or your favorite past inside the present to chuck at thisishell.com or message them to us via Facebook at facebook.com slash thisishellradio or tweet them at us at thisishellradio. That's the 2022 edition of the best of This Is Hell as chosen by you, our listening audience, beginning Monday, December 19th and running through the first week of next year. All new episodes of This Is Hell will then return Monday, January 9th, 2023. I am your bitter, blind, broke, gap tooth radio show, podcast, live streaming host, Chuck Mertz. Thanks to Sebastian Vooper for producing and another past inside the present, which was exceptional. We told you so. This is hell. My demon is on my butt. <laughs> my demon talks to me in profanity like a seller. And my demon tries to knock me down, and my demon tries to put me on a hell ride. Thank you for listening to This Is Hell. For more interview hell, and to support the show, visit thisishell.com.